Welcome to the Talent Talk with Robert Walters podcast, where we speak to business leaders around the globe to bring you the latest trends and insights from the world of work. Hello and welcome to Talent Talk with Robert Walters. I'm Andy McLean, a journalist and podcaster based in Sydney, Australia. In this podcast mini-series, we're exploring what diversity, inclusion and equity really means for employers and employees. We're going beyond the slogans and behind the scenes to reveal the real benefits, challenges and solutions in hiring and retaining a diverse workforce. Along the way, you'll hear voices and ideas from a whole range of backgrounds. In today's episode, I speak with Liesl Knox. Liesl is Chief Risk Officer and Corporate Counsel at Avanti Finance in Auckland and has more than 25 years of experience working in the financial services sector in New Zealand and the UK. In this episode, we discuss diversity and inclusion in banking and financial services. What's changed? What's changing? And what more still needs to change? Along the way, we highlight some practical tips for financial services employers who are seeking to maximise diversity and inclusion in their own workforce. Here's our discussion. So, Liesl, the first question we always kick off these episodes with, because the answer is always different for everybody, is what does diversity mean to you? Diversity means to me getting the right person in the right role. And I know that might sound a little bit PC, but I guess what I mean is making sure that uh, entities or companies do the right thing. They do their homework. They check out what are the skills they need and maybe what are those diverse attributes they need. Is it diversity of thought, you know, customer demographic, um, different cultural mix and makeup? And it might mean going a bit further, checking out a bit wider than they would normally, but uh, it's the right person for the right role. Mm, okay. And, and what is it about diversity that you're particularly passionate about yourself? Well, I think there's two things. The first thing is I think that actually it brings value to the workforce and society in general. The second is, you know, look, I'm like most people out there. Um, I've got three kids, two boys and a girl. I really want them entering the workforce where there is a great appreciation for anybody and anybody, that actually there is respect and that doesn't matter what people look like or feel like. And I have to admit, you know, our social environment really plays a big part in that. I was quite, I guess, astounded um, is one way of putting it. But my daughter a few years ago held up the mirror to my husband and I, and it was it was quite confronting, you know, she decided she wanted to move school. She went to an all girls school and we didn't know why, you know, she was quite happy at school and we didn't realize there was any problems. And we um, assumed it was a drift with other friends and to a certain extent it was. And we asked her to sort of really come back to us once she'd thought about it and give us some good reasons. And she just threw out what we thought was a wild card and said, well, you know, I watch you, mum, when you go out and about and, you know, to the local barbecues, you get stuck talking to all the other mums. And I know you like talking about work and business and making connections. I want to make my own connections. And look, we were just pretty, we didn't know actually what to say at first. 
Um, but it gave us a good lens of what she sees through through her own eyes and what our social environment is presenting to her. I'd really like to make a change, and suffice it to say, um, yes, she changed schools. She um, she finished her education for the last three years at a co-ed school. Ah, kids, they'll always tell you the truth, <laughs> won't they, in, in unvarnished terms sometimes. It is really great sometimes to listen to what others see. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm interested, uh, if we look across the, the New Zealand labour market at the moment, it's tight. The pressure, um, you know, in the financial services sector and a number of other sectors too, indeed, to, to hire is really, you know, it's quite robust. You know, the, the competition for talent is high. Why do you think the financial services sector should prioritise a diverse workforce? Like, what's the benefit of taking that extra step? Well, I think that, you know, the first thing is obviously in a tight labour market, it's fantastic for having money in the economy, but it actually brings that hiring pressure. And what we see is that people start to sort of act a little bit frenetically. They tend to rush to get that PD finished and um, start the hunt to hire but they often don't spend the time to work out what they need or who they need. You know, where is that diversity that um, will add value to the workforce? And of course, that rush can actually mean that people get it wrong and it's expensive. You know, we all know recruitment's expensive, but it's even more expensive in dollar terms if you get it wrong and you have to repeat. And culturally, if you don't hit the mark, that sort of ripple effect internally can really be an expensive exercise. Yeah, well, it doesn't surprise me to hear a chief risk officer uh, calling out the financial risk uh, there. That, that's absolutely on the money, so to speak. Um, so what can employers do proactively um, to avoid those unnecessary expenses? Look, I think the first time is, you know, spending you know, just 10% extra time working out what you want. Is it a subject matter expert or is it diversity of thought and getting balance in a team? Don't just go off to a, an agency with a PD. Think about what your needs are and how you can fill it. Uh, push people to look further and wider. You know, be diverse in what you're actually offering as a package. We were living in an environment now where there are things that are changing, and a lot of large or listed corporates have got their own ESG program. That really helps them. You know, They have to do it, but it can really help them in their recruitment drive because they will be looking at how they get a diverse workforce and what policies and procedures they can have in place. And that can, in some ways, make them ensure that they are a step ahead of everybody else, not only who they look for, but also their, their benefits and package that they actually put together. What sort of small, smaller businesses have to think about at this time in the economic cycle is what can they do and if they haven't got an ESG program they might want to be thinking about how to ensure they get diversity in their hiring and recruitment policy and what that can mean is not only they gain you know a great employee but actually they're able to demonstrate to other stakeholders what they're doing in that diversity space your customers are going to start looking and questioning you know, we see people pulling out of, um, you know, investment funds because they don't like what they're seeing, for example. So starting in that recruitment space and thinking about how to achieve a diverse workforce is, is really a, a must. Yeah, that's really interesting that you're calling out sort of the, the smaller end of town here as well, because as you say, from a regulatory perspective, it's, it's the big boys 
who are subject to the compliance obligations, and, and that will probably only increase. But as they start to apply pressure through their value chain, you know, through their suppliers and, and so forth, then that pressure co- could come to bear on the smaller um, and medium-sized organisations. So it is worth being proactive and thinking, you know, if we want to keep ourselves in the running for these for the business from these larger firms, then we really need to make sure that we've got our own house in order so that we can demonstrate uh, our own credentials. Yeah, that's right. And I think as often people think, oh, that's too much energy, that's too much effort. But once they start being asked by their, by their stakeholders, their customers, their shareholders, maybe investors, or even their funders, it starts to bring home how important actually preempting some of these questions are. Absolutely right. I'm interested too, I mean, we mentioned a moment ago your role as Chief Risk Officer. Could you talk me through, I guess, some of the other broader risks for financial services institutions that don't sufficiently address diversity and inclusion? That's a good question. And it's probably best demonstrated by what some might think is a sort of rather extreme example. But if you've got a if you've got a small business that starts up and really its core game is to sell, so it's it builds its workforce with a um, a group of really good salespeople uh, that they'll bring in the revenue. But a good salesperson is often what we'd call a hunter. You know, they're out there hunting down the next the next customer and driving through the sale. If as that company grows, they continue to hire in the same type of people, what you could find is actually those people are so busy executing on the sales, they're not thinking forward on their strategy. They're not thinking about um, conduct or compliance, regulatory risk or strategic risk. So if you can bolster your workforce by getting a, a balanced, diverse team across and maybe still in the same context of salespeople, you might have a group of of hunters, but you might then also bring in what I would call gatherers and nurturers to take them along on the journey. You're getting that diverse work team working together. And at the end, you are able to take yourself and execute on your whole strategy, not just that sales end of things. So that might sound like a little bit of an extreme example, but I think it demonstrates the risks that you can bring into your business if you're not thinking about how to bring in that balance, you know, whether it be uh, gender, that diversity of thought that comes with different age groups or cultures. And a workforce that actually can bring balance will also reduce those risks because they will question and challenge along the way. That's such a great point because if you if you do lean towards one personality type um, in your workforce, that's going to probably represent itself too at the top of the business too. So all the decision making at executive level and perhaps even board level is going to be of a certain ilk as well. And so suddenly you're, you're, it actually has strategic costs. Yeah, that's right. And, and when you think about it in the context of financial services, I would say very nearly every Kiwi has some type of financial product, whether it be a bank account, debit, credit card, or mortgage. If we look at that in context of nearly every New Zealander, that's a diverse group of people. Why would you have a homogenous group of people providing products and services to such a diverse group without understanding them properly or questioning whether what you create or deliver represents what they want? 
That's a great point. That's a great point. You really do, you know, if you can reflect your customer base within your organization, then you're much more likely to be able to listen to them. And, and listening to your customers really is just absolutely vital. And in the financial services industry, perhaps more than anywhere else, I would have thought. I Absolutely. I think in the financial services world, what we've seen over the last decade in particular is increased compliance and regulation. To not have that balance from a risk perspective really sees those entities um, you know, heading towards a very high risk end of the spectrum. Getting that right balance, and as you say, all the way to the top and allowing people to question and be inquisitive is key. If you have dominating personalities or only one particular type, you're not going to get that diversity of thought coming through and, and that balance. Well, there's certainly been some progress uh, in recent years in the financial services industry. We may talk a little about that uh, in our conversation, but it's probably also uh, worth flagging something that we found in a Robert Walters survey recently, and that's that one third of finance professionals said a company's inclusivity policy impacts their decision to accept a job offer. Um, That's a lot of people. Um, So what advice would you have for employers in creating and implementing such processes or policies and indeed making those visible so that potential employees know about them? Yeah, a lot of um, employees will search your website before they come along to an interview. And of course, the first thing you want them to see is, is that you're a great company. Having those policies up there and available for them is a great a great option to have. The difference is having policies and actually living by them. I think it's fair to say that actually having a policy but not living by the values that you've set in them is just mere tokenism and people can see through that pretty quick. You might achieve the higher but you may not hold them for very long if you're not living those values. And at a really simple, really simple level, I think if you take flexible working, we've we've done a lot of it through COVID, but if you have a flexible working policy, you hold that out as part of the benefits when you're recruiting, finding that after a month or two and people have got their feet under the table and they apply for flexibility, saying no for no particular reason is not going to stand you in good stead. That's just will leave you know the average person with a with a you know bad taste in their mouth and as we know one disgruntled person can really spread the word quite fast compared to uh, one person with a positive experience so my my key takeout is if you're going to go on the diversity and inclusion journey make sure you live it action speaks louder than words hey that's right that's right so, Liesl, let's uh, let's maybe look back over the, the the span of your career. That's a very long time. <laughs> well, I did. Yeah, I probably made it sound longer than it really is. <laughs> but um, but let's just say it's a couple of decades ish. During that career, I'm just interested in in what changes you observed in the financial services sector in regards to diversity and inclusion. Well, one of the things that about my career is I've worked both in New Zealand and in the UK. And if I reflect back to the 90s, I was working for a um, high street bank, NatWest at the time. And I remember on my first day of work, I was invited along to lunch by some colleagues. And lunch was in the dining room, wasn't the cafe or the lunchroom. 
was the dining room and um, it was a dining room. You know, it was white tablecloths, you know, panelled walls and felt very male and somewhat intimidating. Uh, and all of it subsidised, so a glass of beer or wine at lunch, it, um, something we probably don't recognise today. Uh, so that feeling, I would never have walked into that lunchroom by myself. I think that's probably um, one of the starkest changes I could talk to or describe is that, you know, that feeling of inclusiveness. But I was lucky enough while I was in the UK to um, move on, and it probably was actually about a decade later. And I was working at the time for Barclays Bank. I'd been off on maternity leave. I wasn't sure about returning to work. By that stage, I had three children. And, you know, I was balancing, you know, home, family, kids, school, things like that. And in the discussions about potentially returning to work, the, the dials turn and the bank came to me and said, well, why don't we give something a try? And that give it a try was working term time only. That the, the relief that came just with that simple phrase, why don't you work term time only, was phenomenal. You know, getting that balance to be able to work and not worry about what will I do with my children in the school holidays. In the um, early 2000s was probably A, very forward thinking, and B, what it gave me and how it made me feel included in the workforce was still able to be a mother was, was fantastic. So I think when you see see those two sort of decades coming together and the differences in inclusion just from small actions it's it's really quite groundbreaking um, I would say a big thank you to an employer that does anything that helps to make somebody feel that their transition back into the workforce is um, easy and respectable and I think that um, you know we're going forward from there the numbers here in New Zealand as well are with women in particular in the workforce is really starting to change things up and there's nothing like the last sort of uh, two years of COVID to really make a difference. I went along to the Infans Awards last week and that's a um, institute of New Zealand financial services professionals. They talked about their numbers so they have now got to a stage where they're at 37% female membership and that may not sound high, but I reflected back in the first Infans Awards I went to in 2014 um, was memorable because Bill English spoke uh, and spoke well. Uh, but I looked around the room as he was talking. And at that stage, I would have said that less than 10% of the room was female. And some of those would have been people getting awards and spouses, things like that. You know, there was a real sea change. Last week, we were heading more to that sort of 40 to 50%. And that's when you can tell that we've really made a difference. Yeah, sometimes diversity and inclusion can literally be seen, can't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I admire the lady in 2015 for wearing the red dress because in a sea of black, she stood out. <laughs> But as I say, last week, uh, the numbers were, were getting towards that even keel and it's fantastic to see. Absolutely right. I'm just in interested actually in the, we've talked there about how uh, a great example of how an employer can help enable 
parents to to fulfil both roles, you know, parenting and work. I just wonder, what were the conversations in your household too? Because as a male, hearing what you're talking about, I'm very conscious that men have a big role to play in all of this too, right? So it's it, female careers are partly dependent on men pulling their weight at home and 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 having the capacity to do so. So that can be a bit of a, a it can be a tug of war in some relationships. I think everyone's conversations are are different. Um, but what was it like in your household and how did your husband help to enable you to pursue your career and still achieve? Every family is different. In my own family, I've got a wonderful husband and he's been amazingly supportive. But we fell into a trap that I think a lot of families do. You know, you you get married or you live together and choose to have children. We're not very thoughtful about having a discussion about our careers. And I think it's pretty hard for most people to manage two big careers. So having that conversation and understanding what each other's wants and desires are is really key. And although it wasn't at the time of Barclays, I was really lucky. When I returned to New Zealand, I I took a a part-time three-day-a-week role in a finance company. And um, one day, the CEO came to me and said, oh, you know, the general counsel role's being advertised and you haven't applied for it. And I sort of said, oh, yes, you know, um, I took a a three-day-a-week role. And he walked past my desk down to the other end of the office and came back and he said, you do realise you're stupid if you don't think about it. It's too late in 10 years' time to say I wish I had. And I went home and talked to my husband about it and he said, he's right, but I'm here to support you. But it wasn't until somebody told me to have the conversation that I went home and talked about it. And I've had the support of my husband since. And I think that's what really makes a difference. Employers definitely have a role to play, but so does our social environment. So you're absolutely right. Husbands, partners, uh, males all have a, a role to play in helping people make decisions and make decisions that suit their families. Yeah, and I think I feel like we're in a kind of golden moment right now. And, you know, COVID-19 has been uh, a, a terrible experience and it's had some awful consequences. But if you like, the, the silver lining for a lot of families has been that all of a sudden the dynamics at home have changed. Suddenly we've discovered employers and employees alike that it's possible to do more remote working, for example, and that businesses don't fall over if the workforce uh, is not all in the same building. And so that golden moment I'm talking about really is, is is a chance for all of us to say, okay, over the last two years, what has gone well in our households and in our in our work and in our career? And what's the good that we can take from that? And certainly this this discussion around gender roles and, you know, career management is, you know, an absolutely perfect example of that. Look, I agree. There's lots of noise about whether remote working and lockdowns were good, bad or, or, or something else. And everybody coped with them differently. But I think that we do have to take part of what it gave us as a gift because there is so much more understanding now about flexibility and flexibility of roles. People's ability to work odd hours to accommodate Sophie's football or uh, James's um, parent-teacher interview and getting both parents along to those things. So 
I think we have to take the good out of COVID and we have to actually run and realize that we can trust people. A lot of businesses have been really apprehensive to put in place flexibility or permission people to take time out for family. Whereas what we've achieved over the last two years is a good dose of trust, I think. Mm. Now, I would like to come back to the subject of leadership. Uh, and particularly women in leadership roles. Um, Robert Walters' data suggests that entry-level roles in banking and finance seem to be pretty evenly split by gender. Uh, But when you look at the top of those organisations, 77% of senior management positions and above are still held by men. Um, So I'm just interested in terms of, you know, you've obviously reached a senior level in the financial services industry yourself. How can we ensure that more women... I follow you, that, that there are more women reaching leadership positions in the industry. Look, I don't think there's a magic bullet. I'm going to be honest. It's um, each individual woman will have their own part to play in it. Businesses can help. The first thing I think we need to think about is what actually are those barriers? And are they real or perceived? Some of the barriers are a woman themselves not trusting themselves to put their foot forward. And then one of the very easy thing employers can do is, like my one of my previous CEOs, is tell me to step up, tell people to step up, that they're capable and give them permission to do it. Then I think we have to have a group of people, not just women, um, a group of those in the workforce calling out the behaviours that actually stop or prevent women from wanting to step up. I had an experience a couple of years ago when in a meeting I asked a, an inquiring question. I didn't get an answer. I really just got aggressive behaviour and, and what would be borderline abuse. That sort of really created a sort of personal response rather than a work-related response. After the meeting and during the course of the day, I had a number of colleagues observe that I'd handled the situation well. And as I sort of thought through what they'd said, it really came back to me that actually I shouldn't have had to handle anything. Now, that meeting also had junior women in the, in the room. What we represented to them was that is what they would be walking into and that that is acceptable behaviour. So we need to start sort of lifting our game a little bit, calling out those behaviours, not necessarily in the public domain, but, you know, just just turning the dial, making sure that we are actually showing people that we are professionals, that there is opportunity and that there doesn't need to be that type of environment. And they don't have to, you know, that's not what they have to expect from their workplace. Absolutely. And and what we're talking about there is, not just women, but also men having the courage to speak up and call these things out, right? Oh, absolutely. And look, I would say that my colleagues were very supportive of me outside the meeting. I just needed them, and I think society needed them to say, hey, let's get back to the subject at hand. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, look, I'm going to give you a magic wand, (laughs) uh, which is not something that you get in every podcast interview, I don't think. But nevertheless, I'm passing you a magic wand through the magic of Zoom. And I'm going to give you the, the choice to change one thing about the banking and financial services sector today in order to boost diversity and inclusion. What would that one thing be? Well, I think I'd have a queue of people if I had a magic wand. And I'm not sure I can keep it to one. 
Okay, I, well, you can have more than one. We'll bend the rules just for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, look, I think um, uh, gender pay equity is what I would call table stakes. That is something every business should be doing. Uh, and if they're not, you know, th that's a call to action now. Really, what I think I'd like to see is boards starting to inquire and, and, and lift the lid in that sort of people space, make sure that they understand not just the the maybe some of the metrics they're seeing, or, or some companies probably aren't reporting any metrics in and around uh, gender or diversity. What they need to be looking at is, you know, proof points. Uh, is there a unconscious bias in hiring? Are people teams or HR teams using a skill versus diversity matrix when they look to hire the next person, not just that CV and background experience. Boards will do it at a board level. You know, they will, before they recruit their next director, they'll work out what are the skills they've got across the board, where are the gaps, where do they need it, how do they get diversity. We need to make sure that we're doing that across the business now. And I'd love to see boards actually, as I say, being inquiring and looking down into the business to ensure that, that the company is performing at that level. Well, we don't have a real magic wand, unfortunately, but you've given us some actual practical steps there to make these things happen without a magic wand. And I think that that's great. Um, and uh, it's so important. You know, you, you talked about uh, the ability to disclose this information. And if we think about that in the recruitment space, that sends a powerful message to potential employees. You know, if you can if you can demonstrate gender parity in terms of pay, for example, what a message that is to send to potential employees. That's you know, that's that's powerful stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course it then sends that message on through society. You know, one one company doing something good often attracts the next group of companies doing a similar thing. Yeah, absolutely. And the other great thing about what you talked about too is that, you know, we're in this era now of data. So many of these things can actually now be measured. And as soon as you can measure something and disclose it, you can start to manage it, can't you? Absolutely. I don't think anybody should be worried about even reporting things that perhaps don't look good because the only way is up, actually. Having data and not creating actions out of it is the worst use of data you can there is. And, you know, if you are serious about your ESG and your diversity and inclusion journey, then, you know, articulating what your targets are and at least demonstrating that you are on that journey, uh, you know, is quite an important message. We're going to wrap up now, Liesl, but before we do, I'd like to look ahead. Um, we've looked back a little bit and we've reflected on, on your experiences to date. But let's look forward. When you think about diversity and inclusion in the banking and financial services sector, how optimistic are you that we'll see some meaningful progress in the years to come? Look, I am optimistic. I think it starts with the fact that New Zealand, we're an island. We have four top banks, three of whom are led by some great female leaders. And even underlying those CEOs, the depth of experience now in that senior leadership team from a gender perspective is fantastic. You know, once upon a time, although a generalization, you saw that maybe the, the people and the legal team were led by women. 
you've now got some of these large corporations with women leading from the front as economists and treasurers, head of product. You know, that is a shining light, I think. And I think as they go on that journey, so too will those who are not quite so large, not required to fit into the regulatory reporting around some of these things, but they get the leadership from the front, what these banks are doing. There's no magic bullet. And, you know, we've talked about social factors that come into play. Individuals will choose what they want, but I think the playing field is opening up. There is starting to be a mutual respect for all aspects of diversity, whether it's age, thought, culture, or gender. And we're seeing that come through from the larger financial services corporations. So it's now a gift for us to give throughout the rest of the sector. Oh, that's interesting. That's, that's, that's great to hear. So if your daughter or another young woman came to you and said, you know, I'm thinking about a career in banking and financial services, you know, what, how would you describe my prospects? Uh, you'd be fairly encouraging, right? I think I would be. I think there are a lot of places um, in the financial services environment who are deliberately taking steps to be inclusive. And that fills me with a lot of hope. Well, Liesl, I can't thank you enough for the discussion today. It's been really interesting hearing about uh, the financial services sector today and, and yesterday and in the future as well. Uh, I'm certainly feeling quite excited about what's to come. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate you going the extra mile to talk about these type of issues, because if we don't talk about them, we don't make change and everybody's journey is different. So thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode, which is part of Robert Walter's mini-series Tackling Diversity, Inclusion and Equity from Numerous Perspectives. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to our channel and listen to our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. Hold up. 